Good morning. As some of you have heard, the family made it back, and unfortunately, the uh, the baby is as congested as Seattle traffic. So he is with Mama this morning, um, but she did say something to me yesterday that I thought may be encouraging. Uh, you know, we're just we've been here about a year now, and she said when they arrived and landed, and you know, is on our way home, it felt like home to her. So that was a uh, I hope that's encouraging. So uh, it's felt like home for me for like a solid year now. So anyway, um, she she does exist and she will be back. Uh, but unfortunately, Asher, uh, long day of travel and just been sick. So today, today we conclude our series on the DNA of the church with the second part of qualifications for an elder or an overseer or a pastor. There's two passages I want to walk through today in order to do so. So we'll look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We will begin with 1 Peter because I want to point something out that's very important about the role of an elder that, that Peter addresses, maybe the heart of an elder. The attitude, the perspective of an elder, mainly that 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 is an elder is called to serve. Being an elder is servant leadership. And then we will look at Paul's letter to Timothy afterward concerning the desire to be an elder and the character traits or markings which the Apostle Paul says these are required for any candidate being considered to be appointed as an elder. For reference for anyone visiting, we have been preaching through uh, what is the church, what does it mean to be the church, and this is the last sermon today, so uh, for the series. First Peter 5, we'll start there. The Apostle Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as, the, as, well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing, out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I'm also going to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then we'll go back into 1 Peter. The Apostle Paul writes, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." 
Uh, Heavenly Father, um, and God, we ask for insight and understanding, divine insight and understanding of your word this morning, Lord, to know, to know the importance that, that you place on every local church and who leads them, who shepherds them, who cares for the flock, for the bride of your son, Jesus Christ. And help us understand what, it, what the calling of an elder is, the responsibilities and the character and the markings and traits that are necessary to serve in that capacity. And God, ultimately, help in this sermon Cause our hearts, as the song said today, to praise you, create joy, create worship in our hearts, God, toward the one who's redeemed us by going to the cross for us and raising to the dead so that we might have life and be forgiven every sin we've committed. In Christ's name, amen. Back to 1 Peter 5. Point number one. He must be a servant leader. If I was going to have a title for the sermon, it would be he must be. That's every point. He must be. He must be. He must be a servant leader. If you look at verse 2, Peter says, Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing it out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, and not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, well, Paul gave Timothy a list of character traits that are appropriate and necessary for an elder. Peter seems to be addressing the heart, which is befitting for an elder. He says, shepherd the flock, i.e. the local church, pastor the local church, and do it willingly, eagerly, and humbly. And he says, and don't lord it over those entrusted to you. Don't be domineering. And that's what I want to spend some time on, on this first point. Because I find that perspective of humility and not domineering for a leader to, to actually be quite intriguing. And I think mainly because people gravitate toward a dominant method of leading by making it known that they are the ones in charge. That's a method of their leadership. And for every human, me included, it's tempting to use our position as a way to get others to do what we want them to do. It's tempting. Position carries that that rank, that power. But Peter says, but hey, Not for you, not for an elder. Don't dangle your position as an elder over the heads of the people in your congregation. And Peter even reminds us in this passage who the chief shepherd is. You may be shepherding the flock of God, elders, but you're not the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ is the one who died for the church. You're there to care for her until he returns. What seems what Peter's communicating is that being an elder is not a position where you lead with power. It's not, it's not the bravado of a man. 
that makes him fit for this role. Peter says it's the willingness of a man to lead by serving with humility, with humility that is necessary to fulfill this role. Eldering is servant leadership. And think back to the Gospels. That's what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples as he taught them who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, listen, if you want to be greatest, you'll become least, right? His point is, if you want to be considered great, you need to serve everyone else as if they are more important than you. And Peter says here, on the other hand, if you want to be served, well, and Peter says the role of an elder is not for you, at least not yet. The calling of an elder is not to be served, it is to serve. So for those who do want to serve, they're still tracking along with Peter, he says, now, if you want to serve, be an example. I didn't put the scripture up there, unfortunately, but if you turn three chapters back from 1 Peter 5 to 1 Peter 2, in verse, starting in verse 21, we get a pretty clear picture of what he has in mind. I'll read it for you. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, to this you were called, he's not speaking elder, he's talking to the church, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, here we are, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So again, we tend to think of leaders as just needing to be strong and needing to be powerful. We put a lot of stock into those who are mighty as candidates. And we flock to the men who are the, or the man who is the most dynamic person in the room. But as we study our Bibles, we see that Christianity takes no part in that type of ideology about who should lead the church. And in fact, right here, Peter says the exact opposite. He tells us our example is Christ, who did not exalt himself and instead humbled himself by being lifted up on a cross. Jesus did not retaliate when he was reviled, and instead he was crowned with thorns. Peter says when he suffered, he never threatened them with who he truly was, the Son of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. He never threatened them, and instead, what did he say? Instead of hurling threats on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Loved ones, it is not hard to puff out our chest and act like an alpha male. That's easy, and it's done, more common than it should be, even in pastoral ministry. That's not strength. Dominating, intimidating is not hard to do. That is easy to do. What is difficult, where true strength is found, is to lead by the same humility and meekness which Christ demonstrated for us. 
who at the core of his humility did not use his position to prevent his death. And rather, because of who he was, he was willingly nailed to the cross. Why? So that those who despised him would be forgiven. As Peter says, if you desire to be an elder like Christ, you must be willing to lay down your life for the good of everyone else. You must be willing to lay down your life for everyone else. That is the Christ-like model. There's a great quote from the movie 300, which is a story about a war between Persia and Greece. And there in the conversation between the, the Persian king and the, and the Greece king that are fighting one another, Xerxes and Leonidas, during the, their, their first interaction when they meet, Xerxes is, well, he's puffing out his chest and he tells Leonidas, I would gladly kill any one of my men for victory. And Leonidas looks at him and says, and I would gladly die for any one of mine. Peter says, that is the example Jesus set for you and me. Therefore, go and do the same. Servant leadership. And if that is your desire, here is the list of qualifications for the role that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. A one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. That's tough. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with a dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. He must have a desire. We'll get into the he must be's. The point two is he must have a desire. I'm convinced the beginning of a man's calling as an elder is a desire to do so. I wholeheartedly believe that God is the one who gives that desire to every man he calls. And I realize that that may sound somewhat redundant because Peter already said, don't accept this role under compulsion, do it willingly. You better do it eagerly. And there's the desire, be eager to serve, but... but but what should that desire look like? And it's important to point out because the desire to become an elder, if not already clear, is, is earlier stated, a desire to be an elder, it's not a desire to be in charge. The desire should be for the betterment of the church, not our own egos. If you only want to be an elder to be in charge and make decisions, then still not ready for this role. The duty of overseers is not simply just to tell people what to do. It's not even to so much tell people what to do. It's to discern the mind of Christ through prayer and studying God's word. 
fellowshipping and meeting with the other elders to discern the mind of Christ through more prayer, through more studying of God's word, and then helping to serve and equip the church to accomplish the mission. And the way that we serve and equip the church is by praying with, praying with you, praying for you, with counsel. Sometimes we ask hard questions. We teach, we rebuke, we encourage, we shepherd, we lead, we serve. We oversee the flock in the ministries. And we always point you to Christ. So if you want to be an elder, you should ask. Verse 1, do I have a desire? Do I have a strong desire to serve the bride of Christ in that manner? Do I want to love the church in those ways? Do I desire the church's spiritual growth? Or do I just treasure numerical growth? Do I want to see God's people in prayer, studying the Bible, being discipled, turning from sin? Submitting their entire life under the lordship of Christ? Ah, that, that's the role of an elder. That's, we're to fulfill those duties. Those are the expectations. And, 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 and if that is a desire to see the church of Jesus Christ flourish, then maybe you are called to be an elder. But we have to make sure that the way that we see the church of Jesus Christ flourishing is the way that the word of God says that the church of Christ will flourish. And it ain't by adding programs and adding people. It's by discipling one another under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's by being fully committed to the community of local believers in the local church that you are with living with one another, praying for one another, serving one another, giving for one another. And trusting that the will of God will be done. And our role is to be faithful to him and what he has called us to do. Now, that's, that's, that's the fun stuff, but the desire also has to be met with a sobering reality. That as an elder of a local church, a spiritual battle is going to begin immediately for your failure. It will not delay. <laughs> Those spiritual battles are going to come from many different angles. It can come as temptations to just sin grievously or to sin and not think it's a grievous sin, which eventually builds itself up into grievous sin. It will come from being overwhelmed just with the burdens of ministry. It can come from crushing discouragement. The loss of members going to other churches because you just couldn't meet their needs. Your heart will be broken over and over again as you watch people you've invested your entire life into and the church has invested their entire life into walk away from the faith with no regard for Christ or the church whatsoever. 
And you're going to be tempted to bear that responsibility as if it's your fault. As you lay in bed on that night of affliction, and you tell your wife you can't take it anymore, you're ready to resign, <laughs> you're over it. Once you stop talking, it's right there, loved one. It's, it's in the quietness of your heart that will appear a small flame, and it may be tiny, but it's ignited from the love for a love of Christ and from a love for God's people, which will remind you that there is nothing greater than the task you've been called to. It's in that moment that as the flame ignites, no matter how small it is, that it will remind you, the Spirit of God reminds you to cry out to the Lord to be renewed. You wake up the next day ready to go back and love the unlovable. Just like God loves us. As elders, when we're unlovable, I mean, you don't have to ask the other elders, just ask my wife, is Timothy ever unlovable? As stated, gentlemen, at times it may be a tiny flame, but that desire is ignited by love. And that, that little flame, that desire, Paul talks about in verse 1, that I'm elaborating on it will help you it will help your family and your church get through some of the most difficult times it's important that is why paul also writes to timothy and says young man kindle the flame and remain a man on fire kindle your flame timothy now of course desire alone is not enough on its own Paul also gives a resume in verses 2 through 7 of a man's character that must be met. He must be, verses 2 through 7. For time's sake, I won't read it again. It's on the screen for you. These, these are character traits a man must demonstrate in order, ah, let me rephrase that, a man must demonstrate consistently in order to be appointed as an elder. What Paul gives us is a detailed list of what a man must be and what he must not be. And furthermore, he gives Timothy a list of relational qualifications in regard to how a man interacts with his family, the church, and even outsiders and unbelievers. But we've got to establish a few ground rules about these qualifications. Yes, churches love to get some of these confused. Number one, these are traits of his current character. These do not refer or reflect to who he was before he was a Christian. I mean, if that were the case, not many men would ever be qualified. In fact, no one would. And I think one of the greatest testimonies of God's grace is when a man who used to retain none of these qualities is transformed into a man who consistently possesses all of these qualities. That is the work of God and is evident 
in the life of a man. So it's the trait of his current character, not a reflection of who he used to be. Number two, these are to be viewed as a pattern of conduct. No man will be 100% faithful in all of these all of the time. An elder will sin, which means, yes, your pastors, your elders sin too. That is not a disqualifying act. Let me qualify that depending on the sin. Some sin does disqualify a man from being an elder. But not the fact that he sins. The disqualifier is whether or not the man has a reputation of being the opposite of what he should be as we look at this list. Is he known for being faithful to the Lord? Is that his reputation? Or is he known as a man who needs to grow in some of these areas? That's the question. And the true sign of Christian maturity is not a sinless man. A sign of Christian maturity is a man who promptly asks for forgiveness when he does sin and repents from that sin. Sounds counter, but it's not. One of the healthiest things for a marriage is a husband and a wife who quickly ask for forgiveness and repent from their sin. It says, well, how can, how can sin help a marriage? Well, it doesn't. It's the repenting and the forgiveness that creates a healthy marriage. Number three, sorry, don't let me get on a marriage tangent. We'll do that in Genesis. Number three, we do not add our own opinions to the list. We are not legalistic. Well, we shouldn't be legalistic. We must not develop our own set of standards that are greater than the Bible's or in addition to the Bible, in addition to the Bible. We don't just come up with what we think a man should be. We say, what does the word of God say this man should be? And with that said, we're, now we're going to look at the qualifications, some of them longer than the others. Number one, he must be a one-woman man. Verse two, some of your translations say a husband of one wife. You may have a different translation than that or one woman man it is a highly debated issue but i don't think a husband of one wife is a helpful translation the greek itself says a one woman man although you could translate it into a husband of one wife we have we also have though which i think supports a one woman man paul uses the same phraseology here in first timothy 3 2 that he's going to use in regard to widows in 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled as a widow. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a one-woman man. So we see Paul uses the exact same language in 1 Timothy 5.9 as 1 Timothy 3.2. He just reverses the gender. He tells pastors they must be a one woman man, and he says that the widows must be a one man woman. One man, that sounded weird. One man woman. Now, of course, that doesn't prove my point. I'm just supporting my argument. But, but if we just look at the Greek and we just understand the reading and, and we, we take those two verses and look at them, I think it is the most natural reading to, to translate what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, as a one-woman man. 
Furthermore, if you remember last week's sermon, I spoke about Elizabeth Elliot and how much she has influenced evangelicals for decades. And guess what? She had three husbands. Which means if we were to translate the phrase in 1 Timothy 5.9 as a, as a wife of one husband and take that literally, she would have been refused help when she reached the age of 60 and went to the local church for help. Not saying that she needed it, but we're just speculating. Conjecture. So if you imagine for a moment, so Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, she turns 61 she goes to the church for financial support. The church sits down with her that she, she's attending, she's a member at. And they said, well, your first husband, Jim, was martyred, but you remarried. Right? He died for the gospel, Elizabeth, but, but you remarried. So technically you had two husbands. So unfortunately, you've disqualified yourself from being on the widow roster since you weren't the wife of one husband. Or do you think the church would have said, she's been a faithful woman to each man she's been married to. She has been a one-man woman, type of woman. And, and we should be honored to help out such a faithful woman. See, I don't think the issue Paul's referring to is how many times the person has been married. That could be marriage could be an issue, divorce could be an issue, but it's the examination of the faithfulness to the person they are married to now. Are they a one, is, now we're going back to the elder, are they a one woman type of man? And I think it may be one of the most important traits, if not the most important trait, an elder must have. Because the mark of an overseer, of a pastor, in regard to his personal conduct with women must be immaculate, especially his conduct with women. An overseer cannot allow himself to be influenced by attraction to the opposite gender. The man cannot have a reputation as a playboy. He, he must not be a flirt. It doesn't mean he's not kind to women. But he must have the reputation that you can trust him around women. Above all, he must remain true and faithful to his wife. And Paul says, how does he manage his household? How does, what's that look like? How is his relationship with his wife? Gentlemen, adultery is an automatic removal from office and a removal that, that should be done publicly in front of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. Men, if you aspire, those who aspire to be an elder, us who are, sexually, excuse me, sexual immorality is the number one reason men are removed from ministry. And second place isn't even close. He must be sober. He must not be a drunkard. Verse 3. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point. We'll leave that for another day. 
Just let me point out that the text does not forbid an elder from drinking alcohol, but it does forbid him from making alcohol an idol. He cannot be a drunkard. He cannot be a slave to substance abuse. And maybe as a cautionary tale, or just as a caution, it may not forbid an elder from drinking alcohol, but be careful if you do. Be careful if you do, because he does say we should be sober-minded, and I don't think that's just a reference to alcohol. But alcohol can cause us to act differently than we normally would. Be careful with it. Be careful with substances. You must be humble. Verse 2, bruv, excuse me. Verse 2 and 3, above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. I, just, I briefly want to summarize all of these as humility. We're not going to go through each specific one, but you know what the number one, I've, some of you I've told this to, uh, you know what the number one uh, issue I counseled men in seminary about was? Men who were in seminary, it was pornography. Number one issue, men came to me to be counseled, was pornography. Think about that for a moment. That specific sin was what captivated the future leaders of the church most. So if we go back to a one-woman man, it is no wonder sexual immorality is the greatest failure for those in ministry. But you know what the second greatest sin in seminary was pride and ironically nobody ever sought counsel because they were too proud but when we seek out men who will lead us as elders they must be marked by humility and not pride humility has self-control humility is respectable humility is approachable Humility is gentle, and it is a peacemaker. Pride? Pride is the counter to all of these in verse 2 and 3. Pride does not submit. Pride ignites and refuses to put out its temper. Pride causes a person to speak without thinking, to, to lash out in anger, and pride is always slow to listen. Pride insists on its own way. But if you want a healthy leadership and a healthy group of elders, when you're a man among equals, and I do mean equals, with the other elders, I've got news for you. (laughs) You're not always going to get your way. You may be completely convinced you're correct, and you may even as well be. But the mark of a true leader is not the ability to sway other leaders to always do what they want. The mark of a true leader is the ability to submit for the sake of unity even when they disagree. Don't misunderstand me. We should stand our ground for biblical fidelity and faithfulness to Christ. Those are hills we should die on. 
Those are hills worth losing our job over. But personal preference, personal preference is never a hill we should be willing to die on. And maybe I should say one thing for clarity uh, from that last point, just that you don't have to be called to full-time vocational ministry to be an elder. I'm the only one out of four that is actually in full-time vocational ministry. We have three other elders. So just to say, when I said lose your job, I would be the only one. Yeah. Lose your role. There we go. Anyway, okay. He must be a mature believer. Verse 6, he cannot be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He may become puffed up with conceit. Why does Paul tell Timothy that the local church should not appoint a recent convert? Here we are, back to pride. A newly reborn Christian needs to be discipled and learn how to die to self first. The Christian walk is not one of self-exaltation. It ain't about puffing up or puffing out. The church must protect their new believers. This is what Paul's telling us to do. He must not be a recent convert. Protect your recent converts. And one way that we do that is by not putting them on the front lines before they're ready for battle. When I... When I was in seminary, I used to lift weights with a guy who was also a former Marine. And he was much stronger than I was. And he would set the routines for both of us every time we worked out. The problem was sometimes he told me to lift more than I was capable of lifting. And one time we were bench pressing and I was at my max and he wanted to throw an extra 10 pounds on each side. And I was like, dude, no, no. He convinced me, you know, bros at the gym, you can do it, you can do it. Get it, Marine. So I tried, and the weights, they they were so heavy for me that I lifted them with horrible form. And because of it, I hurt my clavicle, which still hurt two years later. And this was like five or six years ago, and it still hurts in the gym sometimes. Was I willing to lift it? Yes. Yes. Was I ready to? No. That's Paul's point. When we ask someone to do something they are not ready for, we are putting them in a position to be injured very badly. And that is why Paul is saying, you do not throw someone into the deep end before they've learned how to swim. So he says, don't bring unneeded temptations on a newly converted man. Nobody is ready ready to lead until they have learned how to follow. If you put a brand new Christian in a position that is most vulnerable to be attacked, you're setting them up for an inevitable failure. And if it's not obvious, pride is almost inescapable for the man who has not yet learned humility. He must be a mature believer. He must be able to teach. I wanted to make this my longest point, but since I'm preaching on Scripture next week, it's one of my shortest. 
Verse 2, he must be able to teach. It is essential the overseer, the elder, the pastor be saturated by the word of God so that in the time of need he can use it and recall it to minister to God's people and, by the way, his own heart. The life of an overseer must be heavily entrenched in the Bible. He must have a deep-rooted conviction that we don't create teachings out of thin air, nor do we reject biblical teachings for the sake of them being unpopular or despised. We have not been given that authority. God has given us his all-sufficient word, and it is perfectly capable of doing everything it says it can do. And if a man doesn't believe that, he should not be appointed to teach it. Above all, I'm not going to get into all the doctrinal issues, orthodox and all of that. He better be orthodox. Just, just want to say, above all, he must hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ with unwavering hope. Able to teach. One thing he has to teach without unwavering is we preach Christ crucified. has to know the gospel. He's got to be able to articulate the gospel. And he's going to minister the gospel into every relationship, marriage, children, the church, sin. We're always ministers of the gospel. Now, there's much more we could say about that, but for time's sake, I said we would move on. So I just, I just want to look at the final trait, or the final trait we're going to look at as he must be content. and deal with the issue of greed. As Peter says, don't be motivated by money. And now Paul says, the man must not be greedy. It may seem like a moment, or for a moment, like I'm going off on a rabbit trail, but I promise I'm going to come back full circle and I'm going to do it quickly. I make jokes all the time about being glad that I'm a minister or a pastor on this side of Christ's atonement. Because I don't think I could have slaughtered all the animals that the Levitical priests had to sacrifice and the ways in which they had to do it. I don't have a stomach for it. I think it was 2013, I hit a bird going to Easter service, and that ruined my whole day. I couldn't even focus on the resurrection of Christ. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ that day, and I hit a bird. It just ruined me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm referring to about, uh, as far as the Levitical priest and their service, if you will, uh, just reference back to the books of Ed, uh, Exodus and Leviticus, and you'll see what was required of them and why I'm glad I'm not on that side of Christ's atonement. But there is one thing about the Levitical priesthood that I do treasure. Here we come back, full circle. Whenever a man comes to me, with a desire to go into full-time ministry, be an elder, this is what I tell him. There's a passage I direct him to. It might seem weird. Deuteronomy 10, 8 through 9. At this time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. This is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites, the Lord 
is their inheritance. And the Lord your God, as the Lord your God told them. And Moses wrote that. And what Moses is saying to them, it comes back from Numbers, all, all the different tribes that, that, that were, were, were set free from Egypt is they're going to enter the promised land into Canaan, into what will become Israel. All the tribes get a portion of land, except the Levites, except those who will serve as Levitical priests. And Moses says, all the other tribes got land, but to the priests, to the Levites, but you get the Lord. On this side of the resurrection, on this side of Christ's atonement, on that side they got the land as their inheritance. On this side of the resurrection and Christ's atonement, our inheritance is Christ, and everything that belongs to him belongs to us. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't be greedy. Don't become an elder for money. <laughs> Most churches don't pay that well anyway. But here's what you get. The Lord is your portion. You get Christ. You get Christ more than most because your life is going to be spent in fellowship with him Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. So I asked the man who came, is Christ enough? Is he enough? I find it's a very significant question because the rest of his life is going to be reminding God's people that he is. That is the role of an elder. We remind you that Christ is the greatest treasure that we have ever been given. That, that inheritance that Christ possesses and we receive, it is worth everything that you may find burdening about pastoral ministry and the task is simple, but it's difficult. We point them to Christ. We point you to Christ in everything. Seek the Lord. Find fulfillment in the Lord. Turn from sin. Turn to the Lord. And ultimately, when somebody comes and says, but my sin is too great to turn to the Lord, then we point them to the cross of Christ. And we remind him that his grace is greater than every sin they could have committed. And the sinless son of God who left his throne in glory and did not hurl threats to those who reviled him. Came and made his life an offering for the sinful. He that was sinless died for the sinful. No. You don't deserve forgiveness. No, you can't work off your sins. And the cross of Christ says you don't have to because he died for them and rose from the dead so that you may receive the inheritance. We are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what we do. We point people to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I hope in that long list of details and, and uh, of being an elder and character, qualifications, Lord, that, that Christ is glorified, that Christ was glorified, that, that, that there was a spark, not to be an elder, but a spark in the heart of everyone here that remembered Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ is greater than anything I would trade him for. God, I pray if they don't believe that, that you would intercede on behalf of Christ's glory and your glory. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.